Boy, that video's long when you're waiting up here to speak. <laughs> well, we are, uh, we're actually at the very end of our series, Faith and Doubt. We've been going through the life of Abraham and uh, started in Genesis 12. Uh, 12, and we're going to finish up here in Genesis uh, 25. If you have your Bibles, you can open that. We're going to jump around a little bit more than we usually do uh, this morning, but we're kind of, this is the final message uh, in, in that series. And next week, by the way, we're starting a new series uh, going through the book of 2 Corinthians called New Life, and uh, really excited about that series. It's going to be a, a really fun uh, series for us to go through, but, um, but we're kind of, you know, Nearing the end, and, and when you do a character study like we have been, and you go through that, and you near the end, you also kind of come to the end of their life. So it's a little bit depressing uh, in some ways, um, but, but I think it's really going to be really good for us this morning, and, and a good, good message that God has for us. But let's, um, let's prepare our hearts and our minds through prayer this morning before we jump in. Dear God, I thank you so much. Thank you that you've given us Abraham, that you've given us that text that we can read and understand, but Lord, that life that we can reflect on and learn from and learn about you and and, and relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you for the mission and the purpose that you gave Abraham and the covenant and the promise that you gave him and that we uh, get to experience uh, the benefits of that. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds, help us to understand well what your word has for us this morning and prepare our hearts to embrace that message for our lives. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, president Obama delivered a lot of speeches as president when he was president and, and uh, as, as all presidents do. But perhaps the most powerful speech, at least I think, that he ever delivered was the eulogy of Reverend uh, Clementa Pinckney. If you remember, Reverend Clementa Pinckney was, uh, was a victim of the Charleston church shooting and uh, President Obama delivered his eulogy. And in his eulogy, he said this. We are here today to remember a man of God who lived by faith. A man who believed in things not seen. A man who believed there were better days ahead. Off in the distance. A man of service who preserved, or I mean who persevered, knowing full well he would not receive all those things he was promised because he believed his efforts would deliver a better life for those who followed. As you you read something like that, and you think about those words, and and you read the story of Abraham, and you come to the end of Abraham's life, you you think, wow, he could have delivered those exact words at the end of Abraham's life. He could have used those very words to describe the life of Abraham. Abraham, we come to the end of his life, the end of his story, if you will, but there's so much there. And, and, and the author of Genesis, in a sense, sort of kind of honors Abraham's life with some things at the end of his life in, in the text. But the New Testament, in some ways, gives a eulogy of sorts. And we're going to kind of look at that this morning. But as we get to chapter 25 the, uh, in Genesis, it says this, starting in verse 1. It says, Abraham had taken another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran. Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Didan. The descendants of Didan were the Asherites, the Latushites, and the Lemuelites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephir, Hanak, Abida, and Elda. All these things were descendants of Keturah. 
Now, just in case you're wondering what I do all week, what I do is this. I practice reading those names, right? And, and I did better this service than the last service. But anyways, it goes on in verse 5. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Mechpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zahor, Zahar, the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Laha Roy. As is often the case, as we kind of have read through the story of Abraham, we kind of learn new things about his life each week. And you might be thinking, thinking in your mind at this point, as, as, as you read through this, you, you realize that, wait a minute, I thought Abraham had like two sons. There was Isaac and there was Ishmael, but all of a sudden we get to the end of his life and the author says, oh, by the way, there was this other wife and then there were these other sons. And you kind of sit and you go, where did this come from? When did this happen? Why now? Why, why is this revealed at this point in the text? We've, we've gone through the text and, I mean, half the struggle or, or a lot of the struggle in this whole, the whole life of Abraham was this idea that he couldn't have kids. That him and Sarah couldn't have kids and, and, and they kept waiting and waiting and God kept promising and saying, no, I'm going to give you a kid. The child of promise is coming, right? And then, you, and then you have Ishmael, which wasn't the child of promise. That was man's plan instead of God's plan, right? That was Sarah and Abraham came up with that plan and God said, no, 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 that's not my plan. That's not the child of promise. I'll bless him, but that's not the child of promise. And so then they waited another about 14 years. And then finally, Isaac comes along, right? And Isaac is named Laughter, and they were laughing because they were old and they couldn't have children, and yet somehow somehow God kind of plays a practical joke on them, only it's not really a joke, it's actually really serious, and, and, and gives them the child of laughter, right? And finally, here's this child of promise, but all these years had passed. And, and there had been this, where's Where's the child of promise? Where's the child of promise? Abraham couldn't have children. Sarah couldn't have children. And then we get to the end of, very end of his life, and it says, oh, by the way, there was this other wife named Keturah, and she had a bunch of sons, and there's all these other kids. And you're going, there's, this is creating dissonance in my mind. What, what, is, what is happening in this text? Why does the author now, at this juncture, bring this up? It seems odd that this information would be withheld to the end of the story. And there's a lot of different ideas about when she became his wife and all of these things. Uh, some people think maybe after Sarah, but it seems most likely that this was before Sarah passed. Um, and the question is, is brought up, and, and it rings loudly in our ears, right? We're, we're doing more than just tying up loose ends at the end of this text by providing this information. So what is it that we are doing? Well, as you look back at the text and you begin to think about Abraham's story, we call the series what? What do we call it? Faith and doubt, right? And why did we do that? Abraham's known as a man of faith, and certainly that's his legacy. And we're going to talk about that more today. 
But the, he also had these significant doubts. As you recall, he's called out of Ur, right? God calls him out of this polytheistic place where his family worshiped the moon god and says, says, I want you to go to this, this new land that I'm going to show you. And, and Abraham steps out of faith. He goes, right? But as soon as he gets to the land and kind of surveys the land, God shows him the land. And he's like, oh, okay, here's the land. And then the famine comes. And what does Abraham do? He says, this is too hard. I'm out of here. I, he, he begins to have doubts and he heads to Egypt. In other words, he, he has these moments of great faith. He's called all the, out of the land of Ur and he obeys. This, this moment of great faith. But then he has these, these times of doubt. You called me to the land, God, but all of a sudden, it, you know, the, the food supply is a little low. And instead of trusting in God, trusting that God would supply, he heads out to Egypt. He, go, he does what everybody else does and, and heads down to Egypt. And things don't go well in Egypt. And he, he lies about his relationship with his wife and all these different things. And it, it doesn't go well. And then when he, he comes back to the land of promise, right? There's these moments of faith. And we see this throughout Abraham's life. There's these moments of faith. And sometimes they're, fo- they're, they're followed by these moments of doubt. Much like when, when, when uh, Hagar, Hagar, uh, Sarah comes to, to Abraham and says, Hey, Abraham... You know, this thing isn't working out. God keeps promising this son, but this son isn't coming. I'm not getting pregnant. This isn't working out. So let's come up with another plan, right? Let's come up with the Hagar plan. Let's do that. So here's my servant. She can serve as my surrogate. So you can, you can have a baby with her. And that can be God's child of promise, right? In other words, there's that moment of doubt. They don't trust that God is either powerful enough or competent enough to follow through on his promise. And so they decide they're going to come up with a new plan. They're going to help God out, if you will. And so they come up with the Hagar plan. And, 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 and so they do that, right? And Ishmael is born. But what does God say? No, that's not, the God, that's not the child of promise. The child of promise is yet to come. And so they have these moments of doubts, significant doubts. And you begin to look back and, and, and you begin to think about, about what it is that God promised and how he continues to use these things. But God, remember, God's promises always are fulfilled. We can go back to Genesis 12 and the original promise. And, and God says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations, right? I'm going to give you land. And then I'm going to give you people, right? You're going to have, you're going to have progeny. You're going to have children. You're going to become a great nation. But later, in chapter 17, God makes another promise. In chapter 17, verse 5, it says this. No longer... Will you be called Abram? Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of what? Many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. In other words, God had promised a nation initially in chapter 12, right? A people. And he gets to chapter 17. He doesn't just promise a people. He says, now I'm going to make you the father of many people. Many nations. And so we get to the end of Abraham's life. And, and as we read this short summary, if you will, the author goes, I need to remind you that God always fulfills his promises. All of his promises, including the one he gave in chapter 17, that he would be the father of many nations. What is common with all of these children of this wife, Keturah, is that they all become nations. And so God, again, fulfills his promises. But you might look back and begin to think. We look back and we go, 
yeah, but, you know, what, are the, what, what happened to the, you know, one wife thing, one man, one wife, and, and all that kind of stuff, and, 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 it, and how does God handle all of that? I, I look back at Abraham's life, life and, I, and I look, man, he failed in some pretty big ways. But God always redeemed his failures, didn't he? As a matter of fact, that's what happens with us. And that's the reminder for us. Our failures lead to God's redemption. Our failures lead to God's redemption. In other words, as we look at any character in the Bible, we've been looking at Abraham, but you can look at whoever you want. What you find is this, apart from Jesus, they all had significant failures in their lives. Every single one of them. They all had some some significant issues in their lives, and God redeems those things. Just like God redeemed the thing with Hagar and Ishmael, and God says, don't worry, I'm going to bless Ishmael, right? He's going he's to have a great nation. His descendants will be many. And so God redeems that, in a sense. God redeems this and makes all of these other kids the, into nations. God redeems that. So too, God redeems the failures in our lives. He can take this, the mess-ups and the screw-ups and, 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 and the things that we've, the times we've doubted, the times we've taken things into our own hands, we've made our own plans, we've not followed God's plans. God can take those things and does take those things and redeems them. Our failures lead to God's redemption. Abraham was far from perfect. But you don't drag somebody's name through the mud when you write their eulogy, do you? In other words, you don't go to a memorial service or a funeral and they, they don't start bringing up all the sins of the deceased. That's bad manners. That's not what you do. And that's not the intent of the author. The intent of the author here is to remind the readers that God redeems all things. This is about the character of God and that God is faithful in answering his promises. Abraham didn't flaunt his failures, but he didn't hide from them either He was a man of faith. But his faith, listen to this, was not in himself. He didn't believe that he could accomplish anything. He believed in the God of all things. This is really important. I've said this before and I want to say this again because this is one of those phrases that we we run around saying. As a matter of fact, I was at my son's baseball game the other day and and there was a mom... Uh, that was that was yelling this very very thing and 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 I helped coach you know I was out on first base doing the first base coach thing and and, sh- and she started yelling this and I started twitching it was really bad um, she started yelling believe in yourselves believe in yourselves right they were behind and you know she wanted to to have confidence and come back and and I know it's a baseball game and it's not quite the same thing but this is the message that our culture often tells us right just believe in yourself can I just be honest like you are not the person you should believe in, right? I am not the person, can, can I just be honest? Like, I don't, I, I am not great at accomplishing anything. I can't really accomplish that much. And what I can accomplish, whatever gifts and talents and skills I have, they're not because I'm awesome, okay? They're because God's given them to me. That whole message of believe in yourself is the message of a culture that does not believe in God. And does not understand their relationship with God. You want to believe in something? Do what Abraham did. Abraham didn't believe in himself. He believed in the God of all things that could accomplish the impossible. That's what he believed in. You want to believe in something, whether it's on a baseball field or in your career or in whatever, believe that God has put you there for a purpose and that God will accomplish his purposes. 
Don't believe in your skills. Don't believe in your, your confidence. Don't, don't believe, I'm not saying confidence is bad. I'm just telling you that, that it, it, is, it is a pride thing. When you start to say, I can do it, it's because of me. You're, putting, you're worshiping self. You're, you're, that's a sin to have pride and say, it's because of me that I can do something. It's not. Whatever we can do is given to us by God. The, ta- the talents, the gifts, the skills that we have are not because we're awesome. It's because they're granted to us by a divine being that saw fit to give them to us in spiritual gifts, that saw fit to send his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sins, that saw fit to conquer sin and death, that saw fit to, do, to accomplish his purposes through you and through me. So don't believe in yourself. Believe in God. Amen? Abraham was a man of faith, but you could also say this about Abraham. He was, he was a man of purpose. Something many of us lack today, I think. In his book, The Boy Crisis, which uh, is not necessarily a Christian book, but I think has a lot of really great insight into the crisis that boys find themselves, young, young boys and men find themselves in today. Will, uh, Warren Farrell and John Gray Note that one of the problems that a lot of young men and young boys face is that they have a purpose void in their life. They don't understand a greater purpose than just what what is immediately in front of them. See, Abraham was on mission. His entire life was on mission. Think about this moment in Genesis 12 where God calls him all the way until the moment he breathes his last breath at 175 years old. And and he lived a life on mission. Everything he did was for for the mission and the purpose that God had given him way back in Genesis chapter 12. God calls him and says, go to the land I'm going to show you. Be, I'm going to bless you, what? So that you can be a blessing to the, to the nations of the, of the earth. I'm going to give you this land, I'm going to give you this blessing, and I'm going to give you this people. And, and as time went on, and Abraham grew older, he realized and he recognized that that was way beyond his lifetime. In other words, the purpose and the mission that he was on lasted longer than he was going to be breathing. So many young boys and young men have a purpose void in their life. And we can take that lesson from Abraham and go, I am going to teach my son and my, my daughter, it applies to daughters too, my son to, to live on mission. I'm going to live on mission that's beyond this, whatever this is. That's what Abraham did. He lived on mission. And this next part's kind of a little bit of a freebie today, a little bit of a, a tangent, if you will. But it's something I wanted to share with you because I think this purpose void is directly related to relationships with fathers and families. And that there is an absence of fathers in so many ways in our culture. And uh, these two guys, they say this um, as far as a solution or one piece of the solution to this purpose void. And it's going to be so simple and so important. And they say this, I have found that the most important single tool you can give your son is a once or twice weekly family dinner night. Can I just tell you, find ways to spend time with your sons, with your daughters as well. It's not exclusive to boys, but this book is about the crisis with boys, and but it certainly applies to daughters as well. We need to invest in the next generation, and we can't do it if we're not with them. It's true that even in our failures, God accomplishes 
his purposes, but I also want to remind us of the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6 when he says this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Sometimes the temptation is to say, well, God will redeem my failures, so what do I have to worry about? I can kind of just live how I want. And, and there's been this false gospel, if you will, that's been preached really throughout the generations. And the gospel goes something like this. It basically says, hey, look, you need Jesus. You sinned. You need Jesus. You need to accept him into your life. You need to receive the gift of salvation that comes through his death that paid for your sins and, and his burial and his resurrection so that you can have eternal life. And all of that is 100% true. But sometimes people walk away from that and what they think is, now I can live however I want. I don't have to worry about it because God redeems my failures. But can I tell you, that's not the message that Jesus shared. It's not at all the message that Jesus gave us. I mean, you begin to think about it. He said what? Take up your cross and what? Follow me. He said the first will be last and the last will be first. He said, he said remember when they hate you, remember that they hated me first. Remember that when they persecute you, they persecuted me first. God does not call us to a life of licentiousness. The the Christian life is not a life of licentiousness, but a life of obedience and redemption. He calls us to obedience, and his grace covers our sins. In other words, when we put, allow Jesus to come into our life, he's, our, our lives are to change. If your life doesn't change, then I, I got a question, man. You know, I'm not sure that that really happened. We need to re-examine that. Our lives change. The power of God enters our life. It changes us. It changes our hearts. It changes our mind, as Paul puts it in Romans 12. It renews our minds. The presence of God in our life, the Christ-focused life, is not a life of licentiousness, but a life of obedience and redemption. And His grace covers our sins. I'm so thankful for that. Well, Abraham had his failures, and God's redemption was clear. It isn't Abraham's failures that he's known for, right? It is his life of faith. Abraham's life had been completed, and as the text says in in, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 7, it says this. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age. An old man and full of years, he was gathered to his people. It's just kind of this moment in the text where it just remembers, it remembers him and it says he died at a good old age. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? A good old age. What's, what's being said there? What's, what's the point of that? And, and as you begin to think about it I, it, I think what the author is saying is it's looking at Abraham and it's looking at his life and it's saying, it's saying it was full. It was complete. You know, when my grandpa passed a number of years ago, now, I'm not even sure I remember how many years ago. It was quite a while. It was, mine. Mine was almost ten, eight, eight or ten years ago now. And uh, I remember being at his, his, his funeral. He, had, he actually had two funerals, one in Florida and one in Minnesota. I, I was at both, right? I was at both. And, um, and I just remember thinking to myself, you know what? He lived a full life. He knew Jesus. And he, and he preached the gospel. 
He was, he was a lot like Abraham in some ways. And, and, I, and I remember just thinking his life was full. It was complete. And that's what the author of Genesis is saying. It's saying he lived, he, he, he died at a, a good old age. In other words, he had lived the span of life he was designed to live. And it was full. And it was complete. He had accomplished the things that God had set before him. And it had reached the fullness of time. He had lived at a good old age. And we might even think to ourselves about that and go, yeah, that's what I want. I want to, when, when my time comes, I, wanna, I, want, some, I want it to be when, when the fullness of time has come for me. That it's, it's, a, it's a good old age. A life is complete. It's, it's full. It's been fulfilled. The things that God has set before me, I have, I have accomplished. And, and that, there's a peace in knowing that that's the moment. But the reality is that not all of us are closer to the end of life than the beginning of life, or so we think, right? Some of us are a little bit younger, and some of us are a little bit older, and some of us are, are, are in the middle of that. And we might be thinking, I don't really have to worry about that because I've got a lot of time. Can I just tell you, I've, I've probably done well over 100 funerals in my time in ministry. And I've done funerals for young people, for teenagers, I've done peop- funerals for people who are, are uh, you know, have reached that good old age. And I've done funerals for people all the way in between. And the reality is this, that we don't know when our day comes. And while we might look forward and hope that we would live to a good old age, as the author puts it, we may not. And we, we, we call it tragic when people don't. But the reality is that whether you are young or whether you are old, this message about the end of Abraham's life is for you. So don't ignore this thinking, oh, I've got lots of years. Because the days matter. But as we begin to think about that, and maybe as you get older, I imagine you think about it a lot more. And you begin to think about about what it is to live at a good old age. And, and you begin to reflect and, and you begin to wonder, and, and I've even begun to wonder this just regarding what will be communicated to my kids and my grandkids and God willing, their kids, if I live long enough, right, at my funeral. What, when, somebody get, when somebody gets up and begins to share a eulogy, a summary of life, what are they going to say? What are they going to say about, about me? Now you might take the approach of, of one mom, and she actually wrote a book with this title, and I, I think it's pretty interesting. We'll put it up on the screen for you. She said, the, 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 the title of her book is this, Why Don't You Write My Eulogy So I Can Correct It? I thought that was pretty creative, right? I could, I could almost hear my mom saying that. She, I, don't, I don't recall her ever saying it, but that's the kind of thing she'd say, right? And this is, I didn't buy the book. I almost did. I was really tempted just because of the title. I thought, this is a really good title. I want to see what else. I might still, actually kind of feeling the itch right now as I, as I read the title again. I, I just, I look at that title, I go, what a great title. But you know, why don't you, why don't you write my eulogy so I can correct it for you, right? I mean, because we're all concerned about what will people say? What will they remember about me? And, and this, this mom took a creative approach and, you know, given today's technology, you, you might even be, able, be tempted to give your own eulogy, right? I'm just going to take my phone, I'll record it. They can just play my video, I'll give my own eulogy. I don't have to correct anything. I'll just tell them what they're supposed to think. But what if we were to write our eulogy in a different way? We begin thinking about somebody writing a summary of life uh, for someone and, 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 
And, and as we do that, we reflect on their life. That's what you do when you write a eulogy, right? You reflect on their life. You try to give a summary of life. But what if we were to write our eulogy with our life? Because that's the reality of what we're doing anyways, isn't it? I mean, you begin to think about it. People are going to write about you and about your life at, at, at your funeral. They're going to write what they know about you. They're going to write what they remember about you. And so the life you live, the way that you interact, the things that you do, that is your eulogy be, being written out day by day. Abraham's eulogy might be, you might be able to make an argument, and I would sort of make this argument, that the New Testament, in some ways, unintentionally writes a eulogy of Abraham's life. Because Abraham's this key figure in, in, in Christian history, key figure in the Old Testament, right? He is, he is, he's the father of our faith in so many ways. And if you begin to look at, at the New Testament, and you ask the question, what did the New Testament writers write about Abraham's life? What is his eulogy? And this is what you find. The first thing that they note is this, that Abraham's life was characterized by faith. We, we know this. This is what he's known for. We, we, when we talk about Abraham, we talk about the significance of his faith, and, and we know that. But, but Paul talks about it and says this way in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says this. He says, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When God called him out of the land of Ur, when God called him away from this polytheistic environment and, and, the, and these other gods that said, I want you to leave that place and I want you to go to this place. I want you to leave this polytheism and I want you to go and worship the Yahweh God, me. I want you to worship me and me only. In this new land that I'm going to show you, he obeyed. Abraham did what he was asked to do. He lived a life of faith. When, when Abraham could have taken the green and plush land and he could he looked at the land when him and lot were st- sitting there and or standing there and looking at the land and their their uh their their employees if you will were kind of bickering about things because the land wasn't good for both of them they had too many uh sheep and and different things and so they said well, let's split up the land you go one way i'll go the other abraham could have said i'm gonna take the green land the the plush land the land of plenty where it looks like the environment is good for building my business i'm gonna take that land he could have done that but he lived by faith when he when he deferred to lot and said i'll trust god god will provide for me no matter what happens no matter what lot chooses and lot cho- chose the green and the plush land and as the story goes on we recognize that god did indeed provide for abraham he lived a life of faith trusting that god would take care of him abraham lived a life of faith the second thing is this abraham's faith was supported by his works abraham's faith was supported by his works Abraham's faith was not a void of faith or a dead faith. As a matter of fact, we begin to think about this and this became an issue uh, for Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 1500s. He, he looked at Romans and he, and he read what Paul said and then he looked at James and, and read what James says about Abraham and he struggled with it. And here's what, what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said about Abraham in James chapter 2. It says this, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. 
And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Martin Luther struggled with this because he read Romans 4, he read James 2, and he, and he went, wait, which one do I believe? Which one is right? Because over here, Paul says, faith. Abraham was justified by faith. He was saved by his faith. And then you have the half-brother of Jesus, right, over here, and he, and he says Abraham was justified by what he did, by his works. And, and Martin Luther really struggled with this, and he goes, which one is right? In his mind, they could not both be true. He really struggled with that concept. As a matter of fact, he called James the, the, the epistle of straw because he didn't believe that that belonged in the canon. He questioned whether that should even be in the Bible. And, and, and so he had a real hard time with that. Well, I want to tell you something that both are absolutely true. They, they both belong in the canon. They both belong in the word of God. Abraham was justified because of his faith. But his faith was verified by his works. Did you catch the difference there? Abraham was justified by his faith, but his faith was verified by his works. In other words, you begin to ask the question, what comes first, right? Is it, is it works and then faith, or is it faith and, and then works? And I'm just going to tell you, works don't come first. Works don't come before faith. Faith comes before works. This distinction is super, super important for us to understand. In other words, we're not out here trying to work our way to heaven. We're not trying to impress God. Can I just be honest? You can't. God's not impressed by you. He's not impressed by me. You can't impress God. You can't say, God, watch. I'm going to do this really great thing for you, man. It's going to be really great. He's going to, wow. Now, he might go, wow. But he's, he's kind of in the back of his mind going, oh, man, you know how many times that's been done? You know, that's like what you do with your kids, right? They draw the, they draw the picture for the fridge. You know, it's like the mom goggles thing from the video a few weeks ago, if you were here for, on Mother's Day, right? And the mom goggles, and the mom goggles are like, it's like Picasso did it, right? And then, and then they take off the mom, mom goggles, and it looks like a two-year-old drew a horse, right? And they just put that on the, on the, on the fridge. But as a parent, we, we, our kids draw the picture, and I hope that I'm not ruining any kids' dreams of being great artists or anything here, but, you know, the, the kids draw a picture like, wow, that's great. And if we're honest, we're just going, well, it looks like a three-year-old drew it. And guess what? A three-year-old drew it, <laughs> right? That's what God does with us, right? We can't impress God. Our works are not good enough. But you look at the text and it says, it says what? It uses the reference of Abraham and Isaac, right? In other words, God says, here's Isaac, the child of promise, the one through whom I will deliver my promise to you. I've given him to you in your old age. You've bore a son. You have him. Now, Abraham, I want you to take, up to the, take him up to the mountain and I want you to kill him. That's what he says to Abraham. And Abraham, if Abraham were to say, okay, God, well, I believe you, but then didn't go up the mountain. If Abraham said, I believe you, I put faith in you, but he didn't put together the wood. If Abraham said, I believe you, but he didn't take the three-day journey to the mountain. If Abraham said, I believe you, but he didn't have Isaac bring the wood of the altar up to the top of the mountain. If Abraham said, I believe you, but he didn't build the altar and put Isaac on it. 
And even if Abraham did all of that and said, God, I believe you, see all of this I've done, but he left the knife at home. If Abraham didn't do all of it, including picking up the knife and getting ready to take the life of his son, trusting God, faith in God, faith that God would provide, that God would raise him from the dead, as the author of Hebrews says that that's what he thought. If he didn't lift the knife and and wasn't willing to go through with it, then his faith was dead. In other words, the actions of gathering the wood, of going to the mountain, of taking the journey, of bringing the knife, of lifting the knife, of doing everything all the way up until the end, ready to plunge it into the chest of Isaac or whatever, however he was going to do it, ready and willing to do all of it. If he didn't do all of that, then his faith was dead. It wasn't real. His actions verified his faith. They're both true. As we look at the life of Abraham, he was a man of faith, but he was a man that supported his faith by his works. But we could say more about Abraham. Abraham's faith, the third thing we would say is this, Abraham's faith paved the way for faith in Jesus. It paved the way for faith in Jesus. In other words, we begin to think about the God's promise and God's covenant and God's revealing of redemptive history, right? And you can go all the way back to Genesis and he creates in the first two chapters. And in chapter three, what happens? The fall, right? Adam and Eve sin against God and God curses the land and curses Adam and Eve and all these things, right? And, and there's this curse, but in the midst of that curse, and all the, already in Genesis chapter three, there's a promise. The seed of the woman will, be, will bring redemption. All the way in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 12, there is another promise. And, there, and, it, and it is a promise of, of the gospel that is to come. And it, the seed of Abraham, right? And this is going to be God's redemptive people that will come through Abraham. And the author of, of Galatians, Paul, he says this in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And he says, understand then, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Who are children of Abraham? Those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. And then it quotes Genesis chapter 12. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And if you read the, the, the overall text in Galatians, it talks about the seed, not the seeds, plural, the seed of Abraham that is Jesus Christ. In other words, it is through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on that we have Jesus Christ. You see, Abraham's faith, his obedience to God, paved the way for faith in Jesus. His blessing that was given to him was a blessing for all the nations and all the people of the world. For all nations. We think about the Great Commission and those of you who have been around and understand that term, 
Uh, it, it, you know, Matthew 28, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have, I have commanded you, right? We, that's Matthew chapter 28. And then we have Acts 1a, and we have these other iterations of, 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 of this thing we call the Great Commission in the other Gospels. And, and, we, and we go, that's the Great Commission, but that's not the first time we see the Great Commission. The first time we see the Great Commission is actually in Genesis chapter 12. When God comes and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. We are children of Abraham through faith. As Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 3. Abraham and the co- his covenant with God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who went to the cross and paid the price for our sins so that we might be forgiven of our sins and made righteous before God. That's Abraham's legacy to us. There's one more thing that I think we can look at Abraham and, 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 and characterize him. And that's this. Abraham's life was characterized by faithfulness. Abraham's life was characterized by faithfulness. Faith and faithfulness aren't exactly the same thing. They overlap a great deal, but they're not quite the same thing. And I'm not going to read the text out of Hebrews 11 because there's a lot of it about Abraham. And, you, and I would encourage you to go back and to read it and to think about the life and the legacy of Abraham that is left in, 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 in Hebrews 11. But the author of Hebrews reminds us of this. Abraham's life of faith and faithfulness was characterized by obedience when God called. Abraham's life of faithfulness was characterized by hope in eternity future. And we see that especially near the end of his life where he puts a down payment on the promised land. He knows it's not his generation. He knows he's not going to receive it, but he puts a down payment on it when he purchases the land for his wife's burial. He looks forward to a time beyond himself to a time where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And he might not have that idea in his mind formulated completely, but it's there. As the New Testament writers looked back at Abraham, they left a eulogy of sorts. But it was Abraham's life that wrote his eulogy. Here's the reality, that whether we are young or we are old, we're writing our eulogy with our life of faith in God. And that's what I want to challenge you to do today. I want to challenge you to write your eulogy day by day with your life of faith in God. Father Michael Judge was one of the heroes of 9-11. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, and I realized some of you might have been pretty young when, when this happened, or, or maybe even not alive, some of you. And, and, you know, but th- there's moments in every generation's life where you just know where you were. You remember that moment. And I remember, you know, 9-11 uh, really, really well. I know where I was. I was at home. I had flipped on the news. It was, in, you know, in the morning and um, a little later in the morning. And, and, I, and I began to see all these images and, and started wondering what was going on in 9-11. These two planes flying into the buildings and, um, and those buildings eventually collapsed. Well, Father Michael Judge was a faith leader in New York. And he was one of those guys that never ran away from tragedy and always ran towards it. And on 9-11, that's exactly what he did. He wasn't a fireman. He wasn't a police officer. He wasn't any of those things. But he was a spiritual leader in the community. He was, he was, he was a father. And, and so he said, I'm running into the tragedy. And he was one of the first to give his life. 
And Franciscans leave a note. They fill out a thing and they, they leave a note that basically says who will do their funeral and things like that. And uh, his friend received in the information that he was going to be doing uh, his eulogy at his funeral. And, and on September 14th, he began to talk about his friend and he began to talk about the life that he lived. And part of his eulogy on September 14th, he shared this. He said, Today I stand in front of you and celebrate Michael's life. For it is, it is his life that speaks, not his death. It is, it is his courage that he showed on 9-11 that speaks, not my fear. And it is his hope and belief in the goodness of all people that speaks, not my despair. And so I am here to talk about my friend. His friend recognized that it was Michael's life that spoke. We too should recognize that every single day when we get up, we don't know which day will be our last. We need to recognize that God has given us this day. What will we write in our eulogy today? Will we be people that live on mission with purpose for God that goes beyond our lives like Abraham did? Will will people get up and say they lived a life of faith? They kept their eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith? Well, is that what they will get up and say? If you want somebody to say that at your funeral, if you want to, like the the author of James, the half-brother of Jesus, when when he talked about Abraham, he called him a friend of God. Then today is the day And tomorrow's the day. And the day after that is the day that you get up and you say, I will write my eulogy with my life. Because I don't want people to point to me. I want my life to point to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace.